Okay. Welcome back to another episode of Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, with me today is a guest I'm really excited about, Jamie Rogozinski. Jamie, uh, as a lot of you probably already know, is the founder of Wall Street Bets, which is an online community he started uh, almost 10 years ago and now is just a massive platform with hundreds of thousands of subscribers and followers. So, Jamie, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Um, kind of want to start out a little bit, and it's right before we started, Hugo and Jamie and I were chatting about this, which is, um, you know, we, we live in an era now of remote work. I'm looking out into my office, which is empty, even though we just renovated and it's lovely because people are preferring to work from home or wherever they are. Um, you run a, a business about Wall Street, and yet you live in Mexico City. Um, how does that work? Oh, just exactly right. Look, I had a, a Twitter spaces yesterday. These kind of like live podcasts with a guy who's got, you know, I found out all these things during the podcast. I knew a little about this. He's got hundreds of millions of dollars worth of NFTs and all these things. And we're talking about this kind of new age of, of different ownership and different concepts and valuations. And this guy is living in Hong Kong for the past 18 months out of a hotel room. And he says, <laughs> I don't know why anybody would even rent, let alone buy. Like, I don't have to make my bed. I pick up the phone and I get food. This is wonderful. You know, so this is a guy that could buy as much as he want to. Yeah. yeah. But chooses to spend more than he would. But I'm not, do you think you would, do you think you could, it doesn't be a particular personality type to live in a hotel. It you does, think you can yeah. handle that? I'm not, I don't know if I could or not. I'm not single anymore. Unfortunately, yeah. it's not my decision anymore. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it definitely makes it. Uh, but no, I'm in Mexico. Look, I, you can be anywhere. Like my, the partners that I work with are all over the world. I haven't met half of them. Some of them, I don't even know what they look like. Right. So we're in different age group and sorry, age group, a different era. And we, yeah. you know, the physical presence is slightly less relevant. I, I was actually born in Mexico and I lived here my very early childhood. And then I was raised in the US. I lived there for like my entire adult life. And then I decided to come here one day, just uh, it was an opportunity. And then when I got here, I was like, this is nice. I think I'll just stay here. It is nice. What what neighborhood do you live in? I'm in Mexico City, more what specific, part of just City? In, a, in a suburb of it. Like it's the western side called Interlomas. Got it. And yep. it's yeah, it's more more family oriented. Sure, sure. We we lived there for a little while. My wife was doing. She did her uh, research for her dissertation at at UNAM, and so oh, cool. we lived in uh, lived in Polanco, which is where. I, New York. Yeah, that, that, for a few that's months. where I lived when I first moved here and I was still a bachelor. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. But uh, so on the hotel thing, before I get to real stuff. So a couple, this is a while ago now, but we were putting new windows into our apartment and you can't obviously live in a place with no windows. So we stayed at the Grand Mercy Hotel because it was the closest hotel to our apartment. And every morning as I was taking the kids to school, there was like a kid in the elevator with a backpack who must have been like 11 or something like that. And I was so curious, like, what do you do? You live here? What are you doing? But you know, you can't talk to like an eleven-year-old kid that you don't know. So I didn't ask any of these questions. But I, I still wonder to this day, like, what his deal was. So if you ever find out, you can <laughs> I will share keep that. An eye out. So thank you. Um, all right. So so take us back a, around ten years ago when you credited Wall Street bets. You know, I it, it now it seems because it's so successful. Like, of course, that was an obvious thing to do, but it, it wasn't obvious at the time. So why'd you do it, and 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 how'd you get started? Yeah, you know, like I got started with it as a, a hobby, really. I lost my job at the 2008 financial crisis as a direct result of it. And then I struggled to get one again. And then I did. And it was a, thankfully a really well-paying job. 
and you know i'm going to work managing risk at a large multinational bank <laughs> and i decide to take some risk myself with my uh with the extra money you know that i i was paying all the things i had to and i had no interest in buying anything else that was fancy so i'm like why don't i find a way to make this money and turn it into millions you can invest it traditionally or responsibly as other people would call it and make a few percent compound that and do that but or you can buy some you know stock options and you make some riskier high risk high return play and knowing that i could lose it all you know but thousand bucks a month two thousand bucks a month uh or or i could make it so i i couldn't find a place there's either the investor type communities or there was the uh professional the craft traders that are technical traders that are actually you know they're, they're, they dedicate themselves and it's not a fun pastime it's more a nine to five for them and and so yeah i created this but i had in the back of my mind this kind of resentment here with what had happened in 2008 and so i'm like i want to make fun of the system i want to but but it's still there for me to use so can't beat them join them kind of an ethos built into it and join them it, and mock them yeah yeah and it, exactly and it grew it by, by itself turns out there's a lot of people in that same uh situation and they could all relate to this uh idea and philosophy and, and it just grew every year over year until did, did you leave your job at, at the big bank to do that or did you start no, off with, at the no, same time? no it was a hobby like it literally was i go in there and i'll hang out and it took took time but just no different than learning how to play the guitar you know it takes time but you enjoy it and then, uh, yeah, I, I didn't really think about making money with it until 2019 when I'm like, wow, this is a big thing. I'm starting to see these big trends and I'd like to share my ideas and I'd like to, to grow this out. So I actually wrote a book about these large yep. tendencies that, that I could personally relate to. And, and it was an entertaining explanation of what's happening in the investment world mm -hmm. with this younger demographic of, uh, participants and using stories that I'd seen on throughout the years of Wall Street Bets. And then, uh, you know, I made some money with that. And then I wanted to create this other thing, which was a like, kind of like a competitive day trading event slash league. And it's esports meets World Series of Poker meets reality TV day trading. So we could have people come to a stadium, watch these, these YOLO or responsible, you know, have like an investment banker up against a YOLO trader against whatever uh in front of a live audience with the actual stock market but then coronavirus killed those dreams right um but uh but now i'm bringing those back there you go the book in the subtitle itself calls wall street a casino so two questions on that one was that you or was that like the editor saying hey we need to really you know uh, make this as exciting as possible for sales and and two you know do you what do you think is is wall street effectively a casino if if people who listen to this podcast, like, yeah, I, I never walk into a casino. Should they be viewing the stock market the same way? The hell is an editor? <laughs> <laughs> That's, that is a good point. Okay. No, they're like, I, I opened up my bike and say, here's the thing, right? So my, my dad is like this famous politician economist. It's like done his own thing. And he's written books. And so through Pending Penguin Random House. And so I'm like, I'm going to write a book too. I'm going to pick up the phone and I'm going to get them to do my book. So they're like, yeah, you want to write a book? I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's a really good idea. And they're like, yeah, no, it doesn't work that way. You have to go through all these stupid steps. So I'm like, yeah, that's not going to happen. Then I go to Amazon. There's like, you want to write a book? Just open Microsoft Word, 
and write it and then sell it. And, you know, I'm like, okay, this seems a lot more efficient. I actually get to keep the money from the book. And, <laughs> you know, I, I sent it to these professionals so they could basically spell check it for me. And, uh, but no, it was, it was all me. And, and it was just kind of, it was the millennial approach to writing a book. It's like, why the hell would I have to pay the agent and the publisher and this and that and the other? Yeah. And look, I sold like, I don't know how many books now, but it, you know, I made like 50 grand that first year from it. And so yeah. I was like, huh. This is a great way, but no, look, the, the, but the name going back to your question is, yeah, the, the, it's kind of a play on these people. I've, I found references to wall street. If you, if you Google wall street and casino, you'll see references as far as Google lets you search. There's books that were written in the early 1900s that already have those references. And anytime that they're used, it's like a derogatory. That bank is being irresponsible. They're yeah. playing with you know, mortgage backed securities and using them like a casino with our money. And and the banks and banks go no 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 you don't understand these are really collateralized things with blah blah blah, and I'm like hold on a second it is a casino clearly right these guys are speculating clearly they can use fancy words around whatever but they're obviously wrong occasionally so let's embrace this and let's actually wear it like a badge of honor which is damn right it's a casino and there's luck involved and there's strategy involved and there's risk mitigate you know there's a risk management of, like there's a whole you know you can make money playing poker. You just have to, to, to have a system. And and so let's actually call it what it is and not masquerade anything around it. And, and that's turned into this whole, I'm a degenerate, right? That knows how to use loopholes inside of a broker to get infinite buying power through a, a loophole involving, you know, these sophisticated trades that require a lot of understanding but we're going to call ourselves degenerates in the process because this is just buttons that I click and now I could spend a million dollars on stuff and I have to worry about paying it back because I don't have it. So, so it's, it's, so that name had, had a lot of thought into it and, um, and it was very much a play on, it is a casino and it's always been a casino. So why try to pretend it's not? And would, would, if, if someone's saying, okay, are my odds better making money playing poker in a casino or trading equities on Wall Street? What's your answer? Yeah, you know, the answer, my answer is, look, if you just want to have fun and throw money at it and see if you get lucky, you can do that. And then the answer is, who knows? Uh, if you want to learn about them, then you get to control your odds. So if, in poker, you learn the pot odds and you learn what you get dealt to you and you and you count that against the probability that you win based off of the you know, amount of money and then you have this kind of mathematical pot, you know expectation of value based off of what you do so it's a math answer so that that ha if you get the two aces like there is a definitive answer as to what you should do plus you can have an element of bluffing and that but in the, in the stock market's the same way if you learn enough about it you get to know the odds and you get to manage your risk and you get to say on this particular trade setup, right? If for people, for example, that do this professionally with, with um, technical analysis, if they say, and they basically draw astrology charts, but those astrology charts have percentage-based outcomes. Like every time I see this, you know, like a big dipper on the chart, the 30% chance it does this and 70% chance it does that, I'm willing to spend this amount of money to see if, you know, this pays off. So if you really get professional about it, you can control the odds just like a poker player. But if you want to have fun with it, which is like, I don't really know if the do seven off suit is any good, but I feel lucky. Guess what? You can get a full house with a do seven off suit, right? You can do the same thing with the stock market. So we're like nine, 10, 11 months removed from the whole GameStop Robin Hood situation. Looking back on it now, and you were obviously a, a key player. And when they write the, the story of it, you're, you're going to be a 
in that. Um, how do you think about it today? Do you think it was sort of a good thing because it sort of demonstrated the power uh, of kind of democratizing the market? Or do you think it was a mistake? Like, how do you look back on it? Yeah, I mean, it's a big moment with a lot of moving parts. And, and they're all positive in my eyes. You know, it's positive on pretty much every perspective, perhaps, except for the people that lost money. Uh, it's good for the people because they feel empowered. They want to learn. It's good for uh, the stock market confidence because now you're having more in, more participants, which increases volume, which is always good. You know, it's it's good. It's a good for a bunch of companies got a second chance at life. You know, AMC is a direct result of this thing was able to raise enough cash to kind of reinvent their business, which let's face it was going to fail. Now there's now there's a chance they don't fail, right? So. It's, you know, and, and politicians got involved, like the, the power to the people. You have Ted Cruz and AOC agreeing with each other on one thing. Yeah, that was like, the most amazing. Some ways for me, at least, that's like the most amazing part of this whole thing. Yeah, every everyone has an opinion. You have celebrities that are like, and, and then for me, it was cool because I got messages, thousands, you know, from all sorts of people. And a, a very a, a, more than half the messages that I got were from non-us people that couldn't participate in this particular thing they were watching on the sidelines because they're in countries where they couldn't and they were just encouraging like yes i hope that spills into our country how can we make this happen here or you know people that i don't understand what the hell you're doing but it sounds like you're giving it sticking it to the man you know and and so that that was very empowering because all of a sudden i said look this this is not just a maneuver that's like about short squeezing this is now people feeling like they in whatever situation they're in actually have a, an ability to collectively organize and have, have a say. So your readers, Robinhood's customers, you know, younger people who are not necessarily already rich, right? Um, they want to become rich. And yet at the same time, you know, there's a strong belief, at least in the U.S. among millennials and Gen Z, that there's way too much kind of inequality in society and that the system is kind of rigged uh, against them. How do you reconcile the two things? Are they just two different camps of people? Or do you think if you kind of could survey all of your fans and readers, some of them would agree with the inequality messaging? And if both are true, like what do we do going forward? Yeah, I think the inequality message is, is shifted slightly because we're in a good position right now, at least inside the U.S. Uh, there is this, I was in the fortunate side of my demographic. I'm still a millennial, like probably as old as I can be and can still be considered one. And, and I was out of college by then I'd paid back my loans. I lost my job, like, but years after the fact. And so I was, I, I was able to survive that without much, uh, scarring, but there were other people that were just graduating, no jobs, lots of debt, moved to your parents' basement, maybe they lose their house. Like, and so th there's people in that, that gave birth to things like Bitcoin and, you know, after central bank and all these things. And it gave birth to the sharing economies concept. Let's Airbnb, let's share your car and call that Uber, or let's share the bicycle on the street and do that thing. And let's become an influencer. And let me do this gig economy thing too, where I can just hustle on the side and do Fiverr and do whatever number of really cool creator contents, um, economies exist. And so this fend for yourself mentality was there. And so that fend for yourself mentality started probably out of necessity. And now it's turned into its own flourishing thing with people probably making lots of money. And now the economy, at least in the US is 
fine, right? Like there's now a weird thing where you you have a lot of uh, job openings, but also a lot of people not looking for jobs, which has never happened. And and that's probably because people are hustling on the side. And people are figuring out how to whatever. So they're happy right now. They're not poor per se, right? They're paying their bills, but uh, but there's still this residual ninety nine percent. The man, the system, the central bank, the the whatever it could be, the powers that be, uh, and and it's independent of how much money they have now. Now it's more this concept, you know, where it's like, this is the way that I choose to live my life right now. Just like the guy that's worth hundreds of millions and just renting a hotel room (laughs) refuses to purchase a property. Why would I, why would I want to change light bulbs? That's crazy. So the value, you know, now that's the the mindset that people are taking when, when, when approaching this, you know, investments and wall street and and now crypto and NFTs and whatever other stuff that pops up. So that so that that same cohort that you mentioned, when they think about crypto, because clearly they like it, do they like it just because they think it's an asset class that will kind of keep going up and it's fun for them? Or is it I don't believe in things like central banks um, and kind of centralized monetary policy and therefore buying crypto is sort of an expression of that? I think we've kind of moved to the next stages of crypto and just like in the actual stock market where you're going to have the warren buffett that values these things based off their book value just get it cash flows and the market value and you have the, the high frequency computers that say oh if i buy this for two milliseconds i'll make a half of a penny and you have the meme stock traders that go i think this is funny right like and, and they, they can all go at it a different way you have that in crypto too so i think that you still have your diehard F the central bank and I like the self-custodial thing and I like all these crypto attributes of it. But I think a lot of the other people are looking at it th- differently. It's it's my opinion that the, the central bank's not going anywhere. All the countries are going to learn how to coexist with these things in their own way, whether they go the China way or the El Salvador way, who knows. But the but they'll have to they, they can't get rid of them. It's technologically impossible. So so you'll have a lot of just different approaches. There's a lot of people that love the pump and dumps. It's penny stock approach to what's the next one. And they're doing it with NFTs now too for a lot of these. We're like, let's pump this thing up. Let's hope we get out on top. And oh shit, I held on to the bag. I lost money. That's fine. Still had fun. I'll try again, right? Like next time I'll be less greedy. And then and they enjoy that process. They're not surprised when the rug gets pulled. They're not surprised when these things dump. They're just like, you know, looking for the next one. And then you have people that are like, dude, I like this technology. This particular crypto is doing decentralized storage, which is cool because with the AWS and they have their reasons and, you know, the tokenomics and all, all these things. And there's fundamental backings from it. I, I think that once dust settles, whenever it is five, 10 years from now, we will now have kind of a defined approach and way to categorize crypto to the point where we're saying, okay, these are coins that can be used for currency. And those the other ones are projects that are protocols that allow you to have infrastructure. And these things here have some form of utility and, and that'll be more formalized and in my opinion, hopefully regulated. Yeah. Well, so that, yeah, cause you kind of mentioned the two extremes of China, which is, you know, banned crypto in El Salvador, which has adopted it as its official currency. Um, if you were Joe Biden or Janet Yellen or Gary Gensler, and you were trying to figure out where the U S should be on crypto, or if they called you for advice, what would you say? 
I would tell I would tell Gensler to buy an NFT. There's this <laughs> transformation that takes place that there's no words to describe it. I looked at them, I judged them, I studied them, I was gifted them by wonderful, generous internet strangers. I sold them for profit, right? And none of that compared to me actually spending a few hundred bucks on the first one. That that is an experience that someone has to do before they 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 decide to to tackle that answer to that question because it, the that experience will translate to your understanding of crypto and the, and the, the communities and how what's possible, et cetera. Uh, so that I would tell them to do that so that they can actually understand it instead of judging from the outside. I yeah. quickly, I was, I, I unfortunately judged crypto as just coins. And then I got involved and I'm like, oh man, do I regret not realizing it's not just coins. Uh, I did that with NFTs and I didn't learn, you know, I learned my lesson the first time. So I'm like, instead of acting on my actions, I'm actually going once they understand it, then they can take action. I think the smartest governments are going to be the ones that are going to figure out a way to take the best of crypto and incorporate it into their system. Countries going to want to control their money supply. I don't blame them, and I don't expect them to just go El Salvador on everyone. Right. Uh, I, you know, th there's reasons for controlling the printer and controlling the interest rates and all that stuff, and so they should keep doing that. Uh, but they should crypto does things better you don't have to you know the ginsler or no it wasn't Gensler, some other guy from the fed said why would you use crypto to send money from what remittances from one country to another where you can use western union right like this thing takes like three days the like western union used to cost 100 bucks three days through horseback physically carrying bills across town like now you can just do yeah. it instantly it's like dude you don't get it like just at least put put your existing thing on a blockchain like don't yeah. close the stock market down at four o'clock. Let it stay open because guess what? There's systemic risks when you close it uh, and and figure out a way to have their own control. I think the government could benefit the entire thing. Figure out a way to tax it. Yes, I'm going to have a lot of haters from it, but we have to have that in order to legitimize it. For sure. Uh, By the way, I, I think most people who are serious about crypto want yeah. a real regulatory framework, which includes taxation policy, right? Yeah. And by the way, I would argue a taxation policy that treats crypto the same way that you treat other securities and assets and like don't yeah. don't penalize us right for mm -hmm. for liking crypto and at the same time yes we should be you know we should have regulation um like everyone else and yeah maybe someone could tell that member of the fed i think the pony express found like closed down maybe five or six years ago i'm, I'm not sure they may still have like one, one off <laughs> so i i have this idea right like because we even talk about nfts like oh it's artwork and you can trace it back to the owner and i'm like no it's not like it can be right it's so much it's a it's a text file and that's that's and it's on the blockchain. Um, but here was an idea that I had to tackle this regulation political stuff. Like, give so if you've ever met a congressman the, the, or woman like the, that's in the House of Representatives that were elected every two years, yep. they spend yep. over half their time fundraising, and that's yep. because they have to just be reelected, etc. So why not? And then there's lobbyists, and we know all that stuff. Why not give every elected member of Congress, both senators, we throw senators in there as well because they have to legislate. Too, and and say to them, I don't care if you're red or blue or purple or whatever. We're this this NFT that I'm going to give you deposits automatically every month one million dollars, backed by tokenomics that they sustain that can be sustainable because there's easily yeah. that amount of money in the crypto world and an easily yeah. that amount of support. And this money will deposit automatically into your account through smart contracts, so long as the mechanism by which you receive the money, meaning me converting it and then you into fiat, whatever this whole thing continues to remain legal. 
So now they're now they have not only an incentive to not make it illegal, but they have an incentive to explicitly legalize it, and yeah. then they don't have to worry about running their campaigns, right? Yeah. Like they have a million dollars guaranteed. They just need to not screw it up. Yeah, like or, that's or, that's or, a really creative use of that. Yeah, for sure. Or by the even even something simpler, if 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 that looks like sort of a form of bribery or whatever it is, which is just if campaigns started taking contributions in crypto. And if people started giving contributions in crypto, then the community becomes politically relevant. And then all yeah. of a sudden, its interests are in the interest of the politicians. I mean, part of the reason yeah. why right now that I think we're in this limbo is while you or I or the listeners sort of firmly believe that crypto is a real thing that will be around permanently, um, there's no real political constituency for it, right? Yeah. And, and if if you believe in the kind of thesis of this podcast is you know every policy output is shaped by political input, if you believe that, there's got to be political inputs and you have to be creating those. And if you're not doing it, uh, then, you know, Yellen and Gensler and everyone else has other stuff yeah. to deal with uh, that the White House is screaming at them about at that moment. Right. So yeah, and I, I think we'll get there. Right. We'll get there either because we get somebody that wisens up to that uh, and they have to do it carefully because, of course, they don't want the foreign governments doing anonymous donations, whatever. They'll figure that out and and or. They will be replaced by the people that are, you know, the us, right? Like the people that yeah, do get it. So what, yeah. one way or the other, that'll happen, um, you know, but but along the way, we can have fun. Like I have this other idea that we're actually doing, by the way. So we have, because I like Wall Street, I like crypto now, and there's really good things that both things uh, can do. And so if you, especially if you plug them into each other. So I'm going to do this this ETF that trades on, block, you know, on the, in the Wall Street, like on yeah. the brokers and uh, regulated the whole nine yards and it's going to buy a crypto version uh of an etp it's the same thing but and this etp is going to track through smart contracts and you know a lot, a lot of flexibility the best investor of our modern era which is nancy pelosi and husband um they are you know 104 percent year over year returns with 12 percent drawdown absolutely geniuses and you know we'd, we'd love to be able to have some of that action too Right. So we'll we'll have that. Um, and, and it showcases that, you know, the crypto component allows a lot of maneuvers that you would otherwise make it really difficult to just do on Wall Street. And uh, and yeah, that's that's a lot of fun, too. And that also gets to talk about how you can plug these things into each other. Where do you see SPACs going? It feels like maybe they're bouncing back a little bit right now, just kind of looking at how they're trading. But what, what's what's your thoughts of them and kind of the future? Well, the Donald Trump one was making some noise, but um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm uncertain with the SPACs, right? It was fun to make fun of them when, when they're just popping up left and right. You know, everyone's just running out their SPACs. It, it just feels like it was a short term, good money opportunity. I, I don't see the long the lasting power for those things. I don't quite see the value. So things can become trends, right? And then those trends go away unless they have something that is that is going to stand the test of time, such as I believe NFTs are kind of going through a double cycle where it's like a lot of just fluff and air and money that's been an excitement. That's going to go away, but there's going, but, but there's components of these things that will remain. I right. don't, 
and the specs have been around forever. It's not a new thing. They just got yeah. popular all of a sudden because they yeah. realized how easy it is to just make money or to raise money. You know, so I, I don't have a strong opinion either or I don't think they're going to be able to stick around for too long because what are these guys doing? On one hand, to defend them, they're raising money and you know, raising capital in the capital market to reinvest into R&D or whatever, make jobs and economy and everyone's happy and investors hopefully get their money back. So that's that's the idea, the premise. And so there's businesses that will do that correctly and then everyone's going to be happy. And then there's other businesses that are just like, no, nah, I just want to go public, use this money for promises and whatever then just you know and their promises are literally like we don't guarantee anything and uh and so we'll get both and we'll see which how many of the SPACs end up being on the one side of the story and how many on the other side um but but i can't imagine a lot of you know i wouldn't invest my money into a SPAC just because it's a SPAC um i could see why some of them are just vehicles yeah, to use. Right. It would seem to me like some of them, if if you can identify the clear strategic value that the sponsor is bringing to the target, so one plus one does equal three, then could make a ton of sense, right? Yeah. If it's purely money chasing a deal because they need to get something done in 24 months, then it's sort of like, well, why, you know, why, yeah. why would I invest in this thing? Um, and I think that's in, in some way, you know, now you can't always know all the different strategic value but in some ways if it's not apparent then that that's probably a pretty good a, a pretty yeah they'll lose the luster and the companies themselves will stop doing it as soon as people stop being as excited which kind of had they kind of have and then you look at the good one that goes out there and, and people do get excited but like it's not easy it, it, as soon as it stops being easy money they're going to stop caring about that um last question S- supply chain at, at what point does it does it become enough of a problem that it starts really roiling the markets and having an impact beyond just when people can get their latest Amazon package? I mean, it's already a problem, obviously, but I I don't know that those things have anything to do with each other. (laughs) You think that regardless of kind of how long it takes to get goods, yeah the stock market's the stock market like that that's i mean it's not a it's not a litmus test for the economy you know there can be some correlations occasionally there uh but the stock market is just like a a place where where people buy and sell and they react to news and it's not immediately apparent like you have an earnings release and they say what, what did avis do the other day right like they were trading at like nine dollars or less, even thirty cents, like a decade ago, like yeah. ninety cents, and then it was trading at like hundreds of dollars, you know, like hundreds of dollars, just on like optimistic earnings return, like earnings call. Like, what the hell does that have to do with with renting cars? Renting cars, not like nothing, right? You know, yeah. like obviously you could talk about GameStop and AMC too. Uh, but there's more, you know, these are individual stocks. You take your average amount, you put the stock market and say like, all right, that's fine with it. You have your outliers, but the, the average of the market does, you know, equalize that. And it's like, yeah, but you have the printer, you know, the Fed the stimulus and all these things like that stuff feeds into it just as much as the supply chain. So I'm not convinced that the supply chain stuff is going to be the translator to making the stock crash, which they eventually will. Um, it, you know, the, the, the fears last time was China with the Evergrande and, you know, the next one's yeah. going to be some other, hopefully not a pandemic, but even the pandemic, you know, knocked equities on their feet. And now they bounce right back up. So yep. Yep. we'll it, see. 
indestructible. How do people follow you? It yeah. exists all over. The biggest place is on Reddit, and, and you know. But if they want to know all the things that I'm personally involved with, and they can follow me on Twitter, just at Wall Street Bets. It's uh, all spelled out with the blue check mark, and yeah. that's where I make references all the time. But people have created their own bubbles of Korea street bets and India street bets, Silver Street bets, Toshi street bets. Like it's now a, an empowerment symbol. What's what's the most surprising one? The most surprising. Well, you were like, like, holy shit! I, yeah. I like K Street bets that kick the Korean <laughs> pop because like they they were they loved me there, and they were um, I don't know they, they just really. Uh, energetic and enthusiastic and all these things but I, i'm not surprised like the silver street bets was interesting because that was like very specific to one instrument like or asset um but they're all good and all the all the platforms are good they're on discord and telegram and facebook and tiktok and the whole thing cool sounds good hey jamie thank you so much for joining us we really appreciate it thank you so much this was great